This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Peter Melly from Ratio Consultants. Pete is a traffic engineer and an all-round great guy. We've known each other for many years after meeting at various industry social events. Pete started his career in local government before moving into the private sector, where he worked for Cardno, Beverage Williams, and now Ratio. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks, Jess. Can you just give us a brief uh, overview of your background and experience, if there's anything in what I just said that didn't cover it? I quite like how you said I started my career in local government. I think I spent all of three months, perhaps four, working at uh, Frankston City Council back in the early 2000s. Um, you know, it was, it was certainly an interesting period of my career and uh, I think I figured out pretty quickly that was not for me and that's when I moved into consulting and uh, I started at Grogan Richards prior to it becoming Cardno and spent oh, 11 years of my career there, which was um, pretty formative and very interesting and uh, got to a point when um, I decided to do something a little bit bigger with my with my efforts and uh, moved to Beveridge Williams to start up their traffic and transport team, uh, which was a, an amazing experience. Um, three years to set that up and, and do some pretty spectacular projects in, in areas that I wouldn't traditionally have worked. So that was great experience. And um, you know, then it got to a point again where it was time for another change and I've moved to Ratio where I've uh, had the, the luxury of rejoining some of my previous uh, comrades. And, um, you know, and again, we're working on a whole range of new projects, which, is, which has been fabulous. And you know, it's nice to, um, to keep evolving and trying new things. Pete, just just briefly, what led you to traffic engineering? Um, I, I, I asked that. I, I always admire engineers because I only got past first year civil and <laughs> failed and then went into planning. But what, what led you to traffic engineering? Oh, look, I failed first year civil engineering as well, Pete. Um, had to go back <laughs> and do that one again. It's a very hard course, I say, listeners. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, interestingly, I actually wanted to be an architect. and. Um, I think this, I would have been about 14 or 15. And um, it just took me as being a great career path. And, you know, I started looking into what I would need to do to get into architecture. And it turned out you need a folio and you need to be able to draw and design. Uh, And as it turns out, I'm pretty good with a straight line, but not much else. Um, So, you know, it it sort of turned into engineering was the nuts and bolts that sat behind architecture and and that's what I went into. And, um, you know, in first year uni, as I said, I failed civil engineering the first time around, had to go back and do it again. Um, But I think it was the second time around you go back and you get a different appreciation and uh, for the the subtleties in, in all the different aspects of it. And... By the time I got to the end of my degree and it was time to finalize, uh, uh, time to specialize in a, in a particular stream, um, traffic engineering seemed to be the least engineering of all the disciplines and it gave you a little bit more latitude. You know, I suggest it might even be the architecture of engineering as it is more art than science. Gotta watch this, Jess. Gotta watch this, Jess. 
Yeah, and I mean, architects and engineers don't necessarily get along too well, but I think it kind of works in the traffic space. And Pete, how has the industry changed over the course of your career? Yeah, I think the uh, industry's changed a lot since when I first started. Um, when I first started, we were doing ridiculous things like assessing car parking for supermarkets at 12 spaces per 100 square metres, uh, which was based on you know, data from the 70s. And I think since then, there's been a lot more effort put into, you know, I think there's a lot more effort being put into how we apply our knowledge to get a better outcome. I think traffic engineering is becoming, and I hate to say it, less of an issue. People are perhaps more accepting now of the fact that traffic and transport, whilst it's important, shouldn't get in the way of good development. Whereas I feel, you know, when I first started, it was, um, it was given much more of a, a credence. And so I think we've, we've, we've come to a point now where uh, we accept that it's, um, I don't know. Let's forget Pete, I, I, there's a theme I want to be talking about tonight. and It's going to be painful for you, but I'm going to be saying trendy but shallow. And <laughs> I can understand, has traffic engineering changed or has the planning regime changed? What do you think? I think the planning regime has changed. I mean, when I first started, we were always trying to get the planning system to work around what we knew was reality. Um, you know, we one of the things that Grogan Richards did so well was had such a breadth of case study data uh, that was covering a vast amount of land uses and of different scales. And you could clearly articulate how things had changed or how things were different to the planning system. And over the past 20 odd years, the planning system has more and more come in line with the case study data. So I think from an empirical perspective, the planning system has certainly changed and that's very much at a statutory level. Um, I think at a strategic level, there has been a broad push for a long time to have transport planning more aligned with land use. Uh, so I think from a strategic perspective, it hasn't changed so much. And it's probably more so that the statutory side has caught up. Yeah, uh, Pete, just to butt in again, but the thing is that the planning regime lagged behind reality. And I, I think that's the case, wasn't it? And it was it was pushed kicking and screaming to accept what the reality was. Am, am I being a bit unfair, do you think? No, I don't think you're being unfair at all. I think that that's quite accurate. And there was that, that large review that happened in, was it 2008, 2009, which sort of broke the plan, planning system down, particularly around traffic and transport planning, and really changed how we look at the system. And it also have to be said as well, though, that, you know, the, the industry has moved so far, just in terms of, you know, even looking at the last sort of 15 years, moving away from just talking about cars as transport modes and, and moving into talking about walking and cycling and those sorts of things. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it was traditionally based around car parking and car movements. 
And now there's much more acceptance of bicycle movement and parking and pedestrian amenity is now starting to become something that's, that's really considered. I know um, a lot of the work that I, I do at the moment around master planning and large scale development, you know, you have to tick the boxes of where does the road go and how do cars get in and out. But there's now much more of a focus on those active transport modes and how they are represented. And I think this still is also, it shows that the, the planning system is still lagging, particularly around, you know, bicycle infrastructure. Um, you know, I think 5234 hasn't been updated since it was first released. So, you know, there's still some work to be done. And I think, you know, the planning system will always be playing catch up. I don't think it can ever get ahead of where we where the industry is without some fairly serious courage being shown. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now, Pete, you had a cycling accident last year. Mm. If you're comfortable, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the accident and also, I guess, the um, ongoing recovery process? Yes, so um, it was a fairly significant accident, um, which, look, without going into the, the details of it, I um, was out in the middle of lockdown within my 5K radius and had a bit of an accident with a metal guardrail. Um, I have now the irony of a transport engineer crashing into a safety device is not lost on me. Um, but, you know, uh, having had that accident, you know, flipping over the guardrail, I broke my spine and am now um, in a wheelchair. Um, I, I do say that I'm lucky in my bad luck. My injury whilst I'm in a wheelchair, um, I am, I think, much better off than what I could have been. I have managed to, over the last, what is it, it's over 12 months now, um, managed to regain some function in my legs, which you know has been amazing. When I was in the hospital, uh, you know, no one would give me a prognosis. No one would tell me what was going on. And it wasn't until I had uh, I transferred from the Royal Melbourne Hospital out to Austin because Austin's the, the spinal hospital in Melbourne. That spinal doctors sort of sat me sat me down. I was lying flat out in a bed, doped up on drugs. Um, they sort of said to me, you know, you know the chances are you're never ever going to walk again or regain any function in your legs. So, you know, to be able to wiggle them around has been pretty fantastic. Um, it has been a very long journey to get here with um, lots of lots of challenges and um, Pete, a the, few the setbacks small, along the way. I mean, I mean these, these trage tragedies, I, I hope you don't mind me calling it that, but all, you know, these serious, serious blows to you you start to appreciate the the smallest bits of joy is that is that fair do you think um or the smallest bits of of things you once took for granted or we all take for granted uh, yeah I, look your priorities shift um i haven't noticed myself you know sitting there and, and watching a 
a plastic bag, so you know, spinning a, 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 a wind like was it American Beauty? Um, but you, you do you do reassess where you're at and what's important. Um, I have always been a fairly laid back kind of person, but I find even more so now. I try not to sweat too much about big issues. Um, there are some things you can change in life and there are other things you can't. And there's no point stressing out about those things that you can't change, you know. Um, I had a very good clinical psychologist um, at rehab and she taught me, you know, a lot of techniques about recognising what your behaviour is and where it comes from. But why you're doing it and then to understand that and, and reposition your focus and, and just take in the world a different way um, has been a really big eye-opener for me, I think, and just getting on with it, I suppose. And, and, and Pete, part of your recovery was time at World Talbot, and we've got a lot of listeners who are outside Victoria, but that's the main rehabilitation place, and, and I know it, I know the place very well through family uh, but can you just describe your rehabilitation that would have been a hard grind to get back yeah um gee how much time do you have i mean i spent eight months in rehab um which was an, an absolute shock to me i didn't think i was going to be there for that long so i had my accident in october last year and um you know we had my wife and i had hoped or optimistically estimated that I was going to be home for Christmas, you know, three months in hospital, that should be fine. Um, but no, it was eight months in, in rehab. And um, the first three weeks were spent in the Austin post-surgery where I learned some of the most basic things, which everyone takes for granted um, for the first five or six days I was basically bedridden I didn't get out of bed um, in the second week post-surgery um, I was doing very light physio where um, I would get out of bed for about an hour a day and for that hour they would teach me to sit up literally to sit up straight and that that was what I did for a week and that was possibly one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. And it, it's something that everyone takes for granted, but until it's taken away from you and, and you want to get it back, you don't understand how much those simple little things add to your life. And, and the staff there are brilliant. Yep. Oh, the staff there are amazing. I can't say enough about the people on the ward, the, um, the physios, the OTs. You know, they, they're a special breed of person. And, you know, when you're, when you're on the ward and, you know, you can't get out of bed yourself, I think it took about eight weeks for me to be able to get out of bed myself. Um, nursing staff had to come and get you and, you know, get you out of bed and into your chair. Um, so, you know, for the most ridiculous things, you might have left your phone on the, on the bedside table and you can't reach it and you can't get out of bed to get it. So you've got to call a nurse to come and get it. And they, they do it day in, day out quite happily. And they're just you know, the nicest people. And um, 
No, I think it's a calling for those guys. It's you know you couldn't you couldn't do it on a whim. These people are made for it. I, you know, I can't thank them enough. Um, my physios and OTs were just amazing. Um, one of the big challenges for me was, you know, there, there was the physical side of things, which is, is a huge challenge. Um, for the first three or four weeks, I had zero function in my legs and we thought it was all over. And then, you know, the physios managed to coax a little bit of life out of them. And, you know, over the next eight months, I was able to sort of move my legs around and I was able to get, um, I've been able to regain significant function of my quad muscles, which allows me to sort of flex my knees. So it's a very gross motor function. It's nothing fine or elegant about it, but, you know, it's still much, much better than nothing. But just the persistence of the physios and just, you know, if you turned up, that was the best thing they could ask for. You know, if you turned up and were happy to put in the effort, they would be with you the whole way, which was fantastic. You sound like incredibly special people. Um, so, Pete, one of the other things we were interested in talking about is um, how you've then found, uh, following on from this process, navigating the world uh, with a reduced mobility. Um, has that changed the way in which you view traffic engineering as an industry? Sure, I guess the short answer is yes. Um, it, it's very interesting. You know, there's a couple of different things. Like there, there's navigating the physical world. And I had um, an interesting experience um, about a week ago. I went and did the uh, Firefly zipline experience over the Yarra River from Fed Square. Um, and it was great. But getting around Fed Square was a nightmare. Like there are so many different levels in it. And... Uh, all, all the different ramps and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that was that was a really interesting experience. So I, I had to go a lot further than my friend who came with me. He was able to go up and down stairs in a straight line and I sort of had to go off to the side. So, you know, the travel path of, of, of people has been really interesting experience for me. And, you know, applying that to work has been um, something that I'm trying to do. That's becoming more and more of just a habit now which is good it's funny you give that example of fed square i remember um when i was doing my planning degree at rmit many moons ago um we did uh an experiment similar to what you're describing is um i can't remember what the name of our lecturer was but um they put us in wheelchairs and we had to try wow. and navigate our way around fed square and you know interestingly not much has changed in terms mm. of the um you know the way in which it's laid out there hasn't really been a lot of um a lot of updates made to it in that regard so interesting to hear your experience on that uh, yeah, and and it's just not like should, it's inaccessible we, we should just, explain Pete, to our listeners outside victoria what fed square is oh fed square is a classic piece of melbourne architecture i think you'd say i don't think there is um what too difficult to understand <laughs> it's just it's so many angles and levels and well, well um, Pete, you've got to start wearing a black skivvy then you might understand it <laughs> someone once told me that there are no two windows in that building that are the same they are all different might be an urban myth i don't know but uh, well the fabricators must have loved that <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's actually one of my favourite buildings in in Melbourne. 
because it is so daring. It is so different. But, but it's, it's a, it's a central, place. it's meant to be Melbourne's central meeting place. Yeah. Uh, outdoor and indoor. That, 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 that's fair? Yeah, exactly right. And the position of it, you know, right next to the Flinders Street train station, which is you know, arguably the train station, of Melbourne, you know, you, you cross the road and you're in Fed Square. It leads you into that public open space, which goes straight uphill via a series of steps or, you know, switchback ramps. I mean, then it's not a steep grade by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a constant upgrade. Um, and and the surface a, is rough too, yeah? Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. You know, it, it is paved, but it's all paved in small bricks and tiles, which makes it... Um, an interesting journey. And then, you know, you get to the, as you go up, there's the different um, restaurants and museums along the way, all at different levels. And, you know, there are lifts that go from level four to level six, but it appears to only go up one level. So it's quite quite an interesting building, but it is a difficult space to navigate around. And then the relationship that it has with the Yarra River next to it, you know, it's much higher than the river itself. And so if you want to get to the river, you've got to go back to the Flinders Street station entry and go back down the ramp to the, to the river. So, I mean, it's not inaccessible by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just not convenient, I suppose. Well, it used to be Melbourne's morgue, but um, moving on, Jess, what do you think? Well, it's actually, look, there was another thing which sort of struck me about traffic engineering and and how my view of it has changed when I went back to the office. And uh, at Ratio, all the car parking is in car stackers. And unfortunately, the Richmond train station, for those of you who've had the joy of going through there, is, I'm going to say ancient, and you know, built well before any disability access standards were around. And the ramps on, the, on those platforms are horrendous. So you can't catch public transport to get to the office anymore. So driving is my option. But you can't get out of a car in a car stacker in a wheelchair. You can't open the door enough to you know, transfer into the chair. And so I was having a chat to our office manager about, well, hang on, how come we don't have a disabled parking space in the building? And they, they chased it up with the building owner and they traced it back to when they were building it, they put in an application to remove the need for disabled parking. And the way they were going to get around it was that anyone who needed to use the building who was disabled would only be doing so on an infrequent basis. And there would be a valet in the office who would come downstairs. The person with the disability would get out of the car. The valet would then park the car in the stacker and then the reverse, when you wanted to leave, the valet would come and get your car and you'd transfer back into the car. And I look at that now and go, well, that's with my injury. That is, you know, a terrible outcome. You know, it takes away all your independence and you're reliant on other people. And, you know, it ignores the legality around people driving modified cars um, when they haven't been trained to do so. But I look back if you'd asked me to do that five years ago as a traffic engineer pre, pre-accident, I would have said, yeah, that's, that's a valid solution. Pete, it sounds awful, but your misfortune might be 
many, many, many people's benefit. Um, it's 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 a it's a hard task to be an advocate for groups, but you are in, and you know, please forgive my clumsiness with this, but you're in a position of straddling both worlds and and bringing new eyes to to, to problems that many people who don't have a voice. Um, can you help me out with the the, the question that I'm going to ask here? Oh, look, I, I agree with you. You know, it's, I think I'm in a very privileged position. Um, and I think, you know, the more and more I, I do this and talk about it, the more, the more passionate I get about it. And I, I want to start advocating for, for these, for these things to happen, which, you know, you shouldn't have to think about, you know, it, it's just because we're not as a society exposed to disability on a large scale that we we understand the limitations of it and you know I I I feel obligated to take my position and really put it into my work and you know get out there and and tell people that no we've got to do it better and I I really hope that I can. And Pete what about housing how I think we spoke about this briefly earlier but presumably um, following your accident you needed to make some changes to your living environment to accommodate your wheelchair. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about what this process involved and was it a straightforward process? Has it highlighted other issues um, in terms of the availability of appropriate housing? Yeah. Uh, housing has been one of the significant issues of the past 12 months for me. Um, obviously, you know, wheelchairs and stairs don't work. So, you know, automatically you can't do a two-storey house. I am amazed at the number of houses in Melbourne that have sunken lounge rooms or extensions out the back with two steps up or two steps down. Um, And, you know, from my perspective now, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Um, it It just creates so many barriers to housing. So one of the issues for me is in a wheelchair, you know, you have a a turning circle now. Um, I've thought about as a traffic engineer preparing some sweat paths for a a wheelchair. I'm sure it can't be that hard. But the turning circle is a big issue. You need space to move in. And so you can't move into a small house. You just can't. You don't work. So you automatically start looking at, at larger houses. And... The big issue that we found is that um, bathrooms and en-suites have no regard to a person with with a disability. Um, For some unknown reason to me, en-suite bathrooms are usually 100 mil narrower than a typical doorway, which uh, I'm sure someone thought it was a great idea somewhere. But for the life of me, I can't understand why, because it basically means I can't get into a vast majority of bathrooms. Can I just interject here as well, Pete? So you've got, just for um, listeners' context, you've got three kids? I do, well. yes. So so we're not just talking about you and your wife looking for um, a new house. We're talking about a family house, which is um, presumably even harder again because there's potentially quite a lot of apartments that, that may be 
suitable because you've got lift access and the like. Um, and I think there are some some standards that have probably been introduced in, in the more recent years, um, which do start to consider um, the access issue in a little bit more detail. But what we're talking about here is housing that's actually suitable for families. And that I think is a significant issue in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think BADS goes a, a long way for apartment buildings in, in terms of setting out accessible apartment okay. dwellings. Hey, can you just explain that to our interstate listeners and overseas well, listeners? Yeah, so BADS, ironically, is the Better Apartment Design Standard, which was introduced a number of years ago um, by, the, by the Victorian government to, uh, to sort of get around the, the small and, and shoebox design apartments, shall we call them. So it introduces a number of minimum standards around um, circulation and borrowed light and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think that's been really good in, in that particular market. Um, ironic, I did go back and actually have a look at those standards a couple of weeks ago just to see what it meant for me. And it's still, they're very, very tight and probably wouldn't suit me. So I think it caters for a level of disability, but, but not everyone. And I fully understand that you can't cater for everyone. But, you know, to your point, Jess, you know, in terms of detached dwellings for families, uh, the current market is really interesting and in, in to see what's happening. A lot of the product that's coming to market seems to be townhouse-style developments, you know, two or three or four two-storey dwellings on a lot. And then I suppose we've also got the greenfield areas, which gives you the opportunity to build from scratch in a, in a dwelling that would suit you. But interestingly, the, the land area in these um, growth areas is, you know, it's reducing over time. You know, a number of years ago, it would be 450 square metres would be a standard lot. Now is below 400 square metres. And, you know, you can't accommodate a family house and, you know, increase the size of it to cater for a wheelchair on a sub 400 square metre block. You simply can't. So you're left, unfortunately, in the position of trying to find an existing dwelling that can be modified or is in such poor, such poor state that you just knock it over and build something on top of it. Um, but that puts you in a position, and this is, I, I've recently done a piece for the ABC about housing affordability, and we discussed how the land area required for housing to suit a person in a wheelchair is such that you were paying a premium for the land, uh, which then almost precludes you being able to build anything decent on it. So I think there's a real gap at the moment in the product that's coming to market to cater for disabilities and people with family in disabilities. Yeah, look, I think, Pete, that you're, you're right. There's some, some huge issues there that hopefully, um, you know, we can, as an industry, get a little bit better at and you know as Pete said earlier I think you as um, as one of the voices in this industry it's going to be really important and really I, I'm just really hopeful that we can help make some change in that space so, it doesn't need to be big change either yeah that's exactly right it, it's it's reasonably um, small tweaks that can be made isn't it yeah there was um there was a statistic I've been talking to my occupational therapist about modifying houses and he was saying that it is 22 times more expensive to modify a house to suit someone with a disability 
than it is to build that same feature from scratch but doing it right. So it's actually, it's costing us money and I, I'm covered by the NDIS to a degree. So the government will fund modifications for me. So the government is paying 22 times more to modify a house for my needs. Uh, you know, if, if we can do some simple changes like, you know, doing proper sized bathrooms and, you know, not getting hung up on the fact that if we do an extension, we need two steps down to keep it within the maximum height envelope or something like that. I think just putting a different lens on it and, and accepting the greater good would be a huge benefit for people, a huge benefit for people, and particularly with an ageing population too. Right, Pete. Now, this is where the interview gets hard. Let's get into him, Jess. She's oh, really, that wasn't hard? No, we're going to get tough now. Over to you, Jess. <laughs> so, um, Pete, post-COVID, there are predictions that our middle and outer ring suburbs will become the thriving local hubs that, the, that they were always anticipated to be, but much earlier than expected with people living, working locally or, or work from home. In your view, what are the opportunities that this provides from a traffic engineering perspective or are there other significant issues that we need to look at? Um, look, I think one of the things I took away from all our lockdowns and my accident aside was the number of people on bikes. And it was not just, it wasn't commuter cycling, it was recreational cycling. And so I think one of the things that I want to see is I don't want to see that go away. I want to capture that and push that and, you know, get people out of the car and doing recreational cycling to go to the park to meet friends rather than doing the short trip in the car. I think that's something that we really need to focus on. And that, that shift will slowly build over time and, you know, become more ingrained in society. So I think that's, that's a huge opportunity for us to embrace and shift away from, you know, relying on cars for short trips and, and moving into those active transport modes. I think we've all become more active over lockdown. Um, Do you know, Pete, you, you say that, but in the States, 40% um, of people... Uh, say they put on 13 kilograms during lockdown. So this whole concept that we got more active during lockdown, uh, it, 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 the data just says the opposite. People were more sedentary. They didn't get out. They didn't exercise because of work or, you know, do all the things. So lockdowns have been incredibly bad in terms of, you know, what people weight gain and things like that and loss of fitness so i um, we're not agreeing here we're not agreeing but, but is there a difference between fitness and activity yeah i think so i mean i don't know about you guys but i did a lot of baking in lockdown and in lockdown yes, one i certainly drank a lot of wine oh my god yeah. jesse you love yeah you're, you're with pete here on baking yeah but, don't get me started yeah. on the sourdough but, but people were locked in there. Anyway, let, let's not talk about lockdowns, but in terms of fitness and well-being, um, but Pete, the middle and outer ring suburbs have very low public transport usage, and I'm sure it's the same in every other jurisdiction, overseas, interstate. That percentage hasn't changed at all in 
Victoria over the last 30 years. Is that about right? Uh, the, the ridership levels have increased and there have been some subtle decreases in car usage as a whole. Well, we're, talking about, we're talking about really around the margins, like 1% or 2%. Yeah, it's right, we're talking. You know, like, so I, I think you know, with a lot of the transport discussions, we we have these comments like, "Oh, it's getting better." You know, it's it's improving, but the rate of change is minuscule. Am I being too harsh? And just you know, don't pull the lead too hard on me, will you? No, I think you're right, and but it depends on how you look at it. You know, from a from a broad scale. I think it was in 2013, 74% or something like that of all trips across Melbourne were car-based. And then in 2019, it was 72%. So yes, it was a 2% reduction, but as you say, that was probably fairly marginal. Um, and also statistical, you know, probably within the areas of judgment too. So um, there's been no change despite you know, 30 years of planning policy, trying to get people out of cars, it hasn't changed. No, it hasn't. And public transport is a function of, unfortunately, um, of affluence. You know, you look at the inner suburbs, which are very well serviced by public transport. You know, they have trams, they have trains, they have buses. They've got everything. Um, and you, if you look at it, you know, people, there was a study done in 2009, I think it was, that showed that 68% of people within the inner suburbs use public transport for convenience, whereas that dropped to less than 30% in the outer suburbs because it was no longer convenient. And then conversely, uh, people in the outer suburbs were using public transport, I think it was 36% of them, because they didn't own a vehicle. And yet in the inner suburbs, only 8% of people didn't own a vehicle who were using public transport. So there's this real disparity between the two. And it really shows up when you have a look at the mode choices. So over time, the uh, ridership of trams and trains has pretty much, it's doubled in the last 20 years. Um, trains slightly more than trams. And you know that, that's kind of makes sense. We've got the densification of the inner suburbs. So the trams are gonna pick all that up. And then we've had all the extensions to the railway lines out to Mernda and um, out to Wyndham Vale and, and alike. And so they've picked up all that ridership. But through all of that time, buses, the, the poor cousin, their ridership has only increased about 10, maybe 15%. And so buses are the public transport that services the outer areas and their ridership hasn't changed. But, you know, but buses aren't sexy, are they, Pete? I mean, no, they're not. politicians and, you know, big announcements love hard rail, you know, fixed rail, but mm. buses do the grunt work. Am I being... No, you're 100%. Like, you know, the bus, the idea of the bus is that it goes around and picks everyone up and takes them to the transport interchange and you go from there. Um, unfortunately, we've, in, in Victoria, had this idea that, a bus should go all over the place and try and pick up as many people as it can before returning to the interchange. You know, we have this quite interesting planning criteria where all how was it 95% of dwellings have to be within 400 metres of a bus route. 
So the bus route has to meander through all of these suburbs. So, so people don't catch buses, right? No, because it takes, you know, forever to get somewhere. And, and they the, infrequent the and, they, and they stink. <laughs> well, well, I, 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 but Jess, you know, they say losers catch the bus. Well, I love being, I love catching buses. But what, what Pete's saying is there's a contradiction in the policy. I think that's right, Pete. I mean, you, you, you want accessibility, but you want to increase public transport use. Yeah. And so DOT, um, Department of Transport, have done this really interesting um, case study out in Wyndham Vale where they actually went off and rejigged all their bus routes and they made them less complicated. They didn't meander through all the streets. You know, they had them shorter, more frequent routes and they found that their ridership went up because they were more simple to use and it was able to take you to the activity centre quicker. So I think that as a little case study is, is, is good to say that it's, you don't need to travel further per bus, you need to travel quicker per bus and the convenience of a bus will then increase the, the patronage. And this has been shown in a number of studies. There was another study in the UK which showed they, they asked for a ranking of um, measures that could improve ridership. And it showed that making a bus service simple and efficient rather than long and circuitous was the biggest item to get people back on buses. So, you know, the DOT have a bus plan, which they're going to, well, they're in the process of rolling out. This Wyndham Vale case study was the first pilot program to test it. And over the next sort of 10 years, they're going to roll that out and hopefully revamp the entire bus system to service our outer suburban areas and hopefully increase that public transport patronage. Hey, what about the idea of bongo buses like they do in Africa? Like, you know, not, not full-size buses, but sort of more like charter buses just running around suburbs using lift technology, apps just to pick people up to get them places. This is Any one thoughts of, um... on that? This is one of Pete's favourite questions. A <laughs> <laughs> no, number well, of times well, this has come well, up. Well, well, Jess, you know, like, the, you know, West is so arrogant, always telling the third world how you should do things. But I think the third world, you know, the, the, you know they're just not as, you know, just an advantage compared to them. But they can teach us a lot of things about moving people around. What do you think, Pete? You, come on, you're with Team Pete, not Team Jess on this. <laughs> oh, look, I had a very interesting experience in Central America a number of years ago in Guatemala where there was um, a bus interchange and it's, they call them chicken buses. I'm assuming it's pretty much the same as a bongo bus. And you have a number of touts that stand out in front of them and you go and negotiate a price and where you want to go and away you go. It was really hectic experience and I, I've got to be honest, I didn't have a lot of faith in it, but it worked. Um, I don't know that we can apply that same well, why can't we put I mean, we, you know, you think about um, Ubers. No one thought that was possible, right? I mean, these things, you know, top-down planning uh, transport decisions or planning decisions, uh, you know, aren't necessarily the only way to do things. What about bottom-up? Yes, true. There was a bit of a pause there. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm trying to politely tell you that you're wrong. Uh, well, but you don't have please to be do, polite. Why? Please don't but be why? polite. 
<laughs> why, why, why am I wrong? I mean, why not a bottom-up approach? Why, why do we have these, you know, heavy, big government departments dictating transport and, and spending oodles and oodles of, why don't, why don't we experiment more on the local level? Yeah, do you remember the National Bus Service from, was it 20, 25 years ago? They did, they specifically ran small buses that, so that they could, um, they could run them more frequently but with less patronage on them. And it lasted a couple of years but never really went anywhere and they've gone back to the, to the bigger buses. Yeah, that, that's maybe because of public sector, you know, uh, oppression. But we've got the technology now that we didn't have then. I mean, surely when you look at the success of Uber and things like that, that they, they, there is so many solutions that we didn't have available. Jess, am I going a bit out there? Always. <laughs> Come on, Pete. You're with, you're with Team Pete, not Team Jess on this. But I think, you know, technology does have a role to play in these things. And the rise of Uber and Lyft and DD and all that sort of stuff certainly show that you can have a sort of, you know, appear to be a transport service. But when you turn it into a mass transport solution, you're dealing with a number of additional customers with a number of additional destinations. And so I imagine that the bigger issue is if you've got a number of disparate people going to a number of disparate places, you don't have an efficient system. It's probably worse than the current system that we have. The way that public transport becomes attractive is when it becomes efficient, when it becomes uh, easier or at least comparable to what you'd be doing in a private vehicle. So I think if you were to dial up Bongo Bus driver Peter, you use an app. He turns to, up you, know, to, you just turn use an app these days. You don't have to dial them up. Well, exactly right. Yes. All right. You, you push the app and you know, Pete turns up with his raster hat on and says, All right, let's go, jump in the bus. Oh, but I've just got to go and stop and pick up Jess. She's down the road. And she's going to, to the show. You're allowed to smoke in the bus too on this one. <laughs> just don't breathe in. Um, you know, and then you know, you've got two different people going to two different locations. And so in a moment, at the moment, you've got the, the Uber function where you can split a lift but it rarely gets used so i don't think there's the appetite to do it and i think the appetite too is not necessarily from a legislative or economic perspective i don't think people are for a rideshare service that is servicing your needs i don't know that society is there yet to wait three or four drop-offs before it's your go. I know there've been a number of trials with community bus services, which are, you, you book them in advance and they, they map a route, but invariably they fail through falling ridership. There's always a, you know, an increased, there's always a bit of a, a buzz at the start. And then after a while, people seem to drift away from them because it's just not as efficient as it could be. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high-quality, multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning-related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. So, Pete, the 20-minute neighbourhood concept, is, which is basically that residents should be able to walk, cycle or use public transport to access services locally, what are some of the issues from your point of view with that concept? Um, look, 
I quite like the 20 minute city or the 20 minute neighborhood uh, theory. Uh, I think it, it gets a little bit, it gets taken a little too literally sometimes. I think it should be considered a 20 minute neighborhood for most activities or for essential activities. I don't think you can lump things in like employment or education within a 20 minute neighborhood. Um, I mean, can you imagine how many universities we would have throughout Melbourne if you only traveled 20 minutes to get to them? So I think it's, it's being clever about it and making sure that the essentials are accessible within 20 minutes. And when you actually break it down, 20 minutes is about, you know, it's about 800 metre, one kilometre walk, a um, bit, bit more for some of us who walk faster. But, you know, it's not a huge catchment area. So I think there's a real tension between how far people are willing to walk for a particular service and, and drawing, drawing that out a little bit further. I mean, the old chestnut is people saying, well, you know, I'm not going to walk a kilometre to the supermarket to pick up my groceries and walk back. And, you know, I, agree why would you that that's that's crazy but at the same time we're doing a lot of other different things which we weren't doing previously i think you know using the supermarket example we've got a click and collect system now which is really amazing you can order your groceries three or four hours later they're ready for collection you push a button on your phone it pings the supermarket says i'm on my way you get there they're ready you chuck them in your boot and you go home and the, the benefit of that is that you're not going to the supermarket and walking around browsing the aisles for an hour and, and picking everything up. You're literally there for five, 10 minutes max, and then you're out again. And so what that's doing is reducing the duration of stay. You're getting greater churn in your car park and you can reduce the quantum of parking you need to service this use, which then has the benefit of you know, you can repurpose some of that space to make it a more inviting area, which then increases the amenity and, you know, encourages people to walk or whatever it is to get to that space. So I, I think there's a number of things that we can achieve and it's, it's all going to be incremental to slowly get there. Um, it's very difficult to do all this in, a, in an existing suburb. You know, like the twenty, you know, the the click and call, you know, that that delivery thing, that that suits the major corporations. Um, it doesn't suit the small shopping centres. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I'm sort of a half and half about the twenty minute neighbourhood. I think it's like most planning strategies, you know, trendy but shallow. I mean, no one's going to walk twenty minutes to a supermarket and then carry their supermarket shopping bags back and Jess might be able to do it because she's young and fit but I would struggle um, most people would struggle and particularly with the weather so I think there's a number of issues there what, what do you think Bert I mean the 20 minute neighborhood sounds like what I grew up in in the suburbs but so much has changed since then am I being too optimistic or pessimistic I think you're being too pessimistic. Um, I think if you, you know, you take away the, the big things that you, 
you just can't do in active transport. You know, if we all end up working in the city as everyone's suggesting that we're going to do, and you know, your, your education trips and your supermarket trips, like it's not feasible to do those on a bike or in the rain. Like it, it's it's just difficult. But what about all the other trips? Like, you know, what if you're going down to the local post office to return those shoes that you just bought online? Or what if you're going down to the cafe to meet some friends? Or you want to go to uh, the park and, you know, go for a run or take the kids down to the park or something like that. Those are all things that can be achieved in a 20-minute city. And so I think that a 20-minute neighbourhood is more about empowering people to take short trips via alternate transport choices. I don't think we can alter the long distance trips that people take without some significant structural changes to a society, but it's those short trips that we can change for those ancillary uses. And if we can do that, that's a win. I think as well, though, we've got to recognise, and perhaps, Pete, you you may not fall into this camp, but I think we need to recognise that the nature of um, our society is changing in the sense that you know, it's sort of gone in the days of doing one big supermarket trip each week or every fortnight or every month or whatever it might be. You know, a lot of people are moving more towards going to the supermarket a couple of times a week and just getting a couple of things as they need it or doing that one big trip or that one big shop and then topping up throughout the week. So, you know, again, as you say, Pete, the those smaller trips, um, you, you can probably do either by walking down or running down or riding your bike or whatever it might be. It's just that for those bigger trips, of course, you can't do that because, you know, you've got, you'd be lugging around bags and bags full of, um, of goods. Yeah, I, 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 I take that point, Jess. And I, I think it's aspirational. Like I want to, you know, um, go to the gym and lose weight and, um, you know, read more books. But I, I, it's, it's like that point we talked about, public transport uses hasn't changed over 30 years. You know, um, I think we need a more adult conversation, Pete. Am I being a bit too grumpy and old? Definitely. Yeah, I think so. I Pete. didn't ask you, Jess. But... <laughs> <laughs> Look, Pete, you need to get with the times. I but, think Jess is right. Look, Things please, are changing. But, please, but the Pete, other thing is, I, there's nothing I, wrong with through, aspiration. I, Jess, I live, no, Jess, I want to respond to that. Pete, I've listened to, I've been through so many times, as you put it, to, to hear that there's a consistent thread that, uh, you know, it's, it's like market cycles. You know, you hear the same thing. You hear the same pitch and sell. But, um, yeah, look, let's, let's, let's balance, you know, actual with um, theory maybe a bit. I think it's going to be really interesting to see 20-minute neighbourhoods in our regional centres. So with our recent COVID outbreaks and our lockdowns and and the population moving to regional centres, those regional centres are eminently accessible. They don't have public transport access like you would in metropolitan Melbourne, but they are much more walkable. And places like Geelong and Ballarat are spending a lot of time and effort in bicycle infrastructure to improve all that. And they are all well within 20 minutes of getting somewhere. So I think those little areas could be an interesting case study in seeing what we can do if we put our minds to it. Yeah, Pete, look, you know, for our listeners outside Victoria and Australia, 
they're regional cities you mentioned. But again, it's like in those places, I'm familiar with those regional cities very well, Jess is from Bendigo, but, you know, it's the same inner city, middle city, you know, outer suburbs divide. Because in Geelong, it's got fantastic stuff inner, which is, for our listeners outside Victoria, the second biggest city in Victoria. But once you go outside the inner city, it's the same as metro areas, Pete. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit harsh on you. Hmm? No, I think you're right. I mean, particularly with, um, I think Ballarat is, is probably a good example where there's a lot of growth on the outer corridors, but everything is still anticipated to come into the CBD. I mean, Geelong, I think, is a slightly different beast in that, you know, the likes of Armstrong Creek does have a number of activity centres that can cater for those needs. Um, I, I look, And I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail from everyone in Ballarat for saying that, but I think it's probably a more centralised model, which probably stands to your point. But I, I think it's the opportunity for us to look at going, well, this is what we've done. Why have we done it that way? This is our aspiration. Well, how do we get to our aspiration? You know, it, it's, I think we've got to be brave about these things. And, you know, this is something that's, I think, for people who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, most people who come on talk about being brave and, and, and taking that leap and getting things done. And I think that's what we need to do. And, and just cheers them and I'm sort of, you know, um, anyway, I think there's a sort of a religious theme that we should explore here, Jess. But um, now, Pete, there's been a lot of hype about EVs, uh, electric vehicles. What are your thoughts? Uh, look, if I could afford it, I'd love to have a Tesla. I think they're a, a lovely looking car. And from an engineering perspective, they're a very well engineered car. Um, they're not like a traditional car, which I think is, is, is quite a good way of doing it. But I don't really see them going very far in the current market. There's been some uh, market penetration modelling done, which suggests that in the next 10 years, they're still not going to exceed 10% of the fleet. And, and it's all basically around government incentives or the lack of government incentives to get it to, to go. Um, I, I would like to see... Pete, just on that point, I mean, government subsidies means transfers from typically the poor to the rich to buy Teslas. I mean, do we, I mean, you know, the person driving around the clapped out old 2006 Toyota Corolla is subsidising someone buying a brand new, very expensive Tesla. I mean, where's the equity in all that? Well, I mean, you know, the, the Tesla Model 3 is $36,000, which is no more than a standard uh, car these days. I think to say a clapped out 2006 Corolla, which was a very good Corolla, by the way, um, you, you know, you, you're picking the bottom bottom end of the range versus the top end of the range there. So I think you've got to be a little bit more realistic in what we're looking at. And so when you're talking a $36,000 Tesla versus a, a $30,000 Mazda 3, for example, I, I don't think the difference is that great. Um, Pete, if you can find a $36,000 Tesla in Victoria, I'll give you 10 grand. Yeah, look, the wait list is excessive. I will give you that. Um, but I, I think, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's no reason why we shouldn't do EVs. And I think from a you know, pollution point of view, if we can, why not? 
it comes back to that conversation that Pete, you and I were having before, I suppose, as well about um, protecting energy supply in the energy grid, because obviously you've got to power these vehicles somehow. Um, I'm working on a project at the moment, which is eight apartments in South Yarra, where they want to provide charging points for each one of those vehicles in the, in the basement. And the services engineer is sort of, you know, running the calculations and trying to figure out if they can do it without actually having to put a substation on site. And so, you know, you have to put in this massive infrastructure in terms of a substation to cater for eight dwellings simply because they're trying to power EVs. And so they're trying to come up with some really clever ways to charge the EVs where, you know, you slowly trickle charge them throughout the day or over the night. And I don't quite understand those things, but, you know, that, that's a really interesting perspective because it's not necessarily the vehicle itself that's being a barrier. It's the infrastructure that supports them that's the barrier. Can we talk briefly about the driverless car? This was obviously a very big talking point, um, particularly a few years ago. It was a consistent theme through a lot of our podcasts, but it seems to have slid off the public talking points a little bit. Yeah. What happened? Oh, I saw this great graph, which um, basically it, um, it starts with a, with a massive peak and that's it, labelled the, um, the peak of uh, expectation and then it drops into a deep, deep trough and it's the trough of reality and then there's the slow climb back out on the graph, which is the uh, slow climb to, um, to delivery. And I think that is perfect example of, of AVs, of automated vehicles. The, everyone can see with the technology that we've currently got how an AV could work. Like it's, it's not so far beyond our realms of understanding. You know, we can see it working in society. And so everyone got really excited about it. Like this is going to happen. And, um, you know, Pete's favourite car manufacturer, Tesla, went ahead and did a whole bunch of AV testing. And, um, you know, we, we saw progress and everyone was very excited about it. And then I think reality has really struck and, you know, where everyone's beginning to realise there's a vast amount of work that's required to deliver an AV network. And it's, uh, it's got to be a holistic network. It can't just be AVs on a freeway. It's got to be AVs in an urban oh, environment. There's no people in the, that, that techno computer world though, Pete. I mean, that's what scares me. I mean, I love Elon Musk, you know, the, the guy who started Tesla. I love him. I think he's out there. But, you know, the, the whole driverless vehicle was just some, like, computer simulation. Am I being too old-fashioned? Oh, look, I, um, I've always owned and driven manual cars, and I love driving. Like, it was such a good experience. Um, but at the same time, can you spend your time more efficiently? And, you know, does an AV give you that opportunity? Quite possibly, if you don't have to drive the vehicle, can you spend that time better engaged with perhaps the children as you drop them off to school or um, be actively engaged in uh, an eight o'clock meeting as you're in transit on the way into the office? I think there are, there are benefits to it. Um, the societal impact, I'll leave to you, Pete, but from a, a transport planning and traffic engineering perspective, it's very achievable. It's just, you know, 
it won't be between. I don't think that we're going to see a material impact for AVs before 2050. Wow, that's a big call, 2050. Yeah, I think it's, and I'm, I'm talking about a significant market penetration here and across all environments. Because with automated vehicles, what we're talking about is we're talking about a fleet of automated vehicles that talk to each other and can remove, move remotely through a, an environment without risk to injury. So, this, it, Pete, this, this touches on a subject which we don't discuss, I think, and that is, you know, we talk about EVs, you know, uh, Teslas and things like that, and we talk about AVs, but we never consider the second world or the third world or the fourth world. I mean, can we seriously think about electric vehicles in Java or most of India? Or can we really think about AVs in, I mean, we've got to think the marketplace is not just the inner city suburbs, sorry, the inner suburbs of most of our major cities. It's, the outer suburbs, it's the regional areas, and it's the third world. Mm. You know, but we never talk about those things in our, you know, rush to embrace these shiny new toys. Am I being old and grumpy? <laughs> you said a lot. They said that a lot, Pete. Um, right, cynical, cynical, cynical. Yeah, some would say that realistic. But we don't consider the third world or the second world. We don't consider all those things, do we, in our rush to embrace these things? No, and that, that's why there was all that excitement at the start. Like everyone was rushing headlong into it. And, and now we're looking back at it and going, oh, yeah, okay, so it's going to be difficult. And, you know, the, the hardest, one of the hardest ones to do is a rural road environment, not because there's a lot of traffic, because there isn't. It's about having a maintenance program which maintains the road to a significant level that an AV can read the signs, it can identify the, the paintwork, you know, on the, on the road, all that sort of stuff. And particularly in those third world um, countries that you're talking about, Pete, road maintenance is not a thing. You know, you just put down some pavement and you get it done. It would be extremely difficult for them to maintain an environment where such a vehicle could operate appropriately. So, I think so, it would even be a challenge for us to do. So, so all this sort of, you know, all this sort of talk about EVs and AVs is essentially first world imperialism. Fair? I would like to think of it, Pete, as that we are pushing the barrow to try and make things better. And if we do it, others will follow. I think we move on before Pete gets even more <laughs> older and grumpier. <laughs> God, Pete, um, you sound like... Yeah. So, Pete, you've been fundraising, as we understand, for the Spinal Injury Unit at the Royal Talbot Rehab Centre mm. um, to provide additional services for spinal injury patients. Can you talk about how the technology has advanced in enabling those with spinal cord injuries to get back on the bike? And how can our listeners get involved and support you further? Yeah, it's so I recently ran a, a charity bike ride um, with a couple of uh, people. Well, I think we had 30 people turn up on the day to do some laps of Albert Park Lake on a beautiful Melbourne morning. The weather turned out perfectly for us. Um, and it look, it all came about when 
obviously I, I had my accident on my bike and I've been a keen cyclist for uh, quite a while now. And I wanted to get back on a, on a bike in some fashion. And I was hassling the people at uh, Royal Talbot about how we might do this. And, you know, it really sort of it caught them by surprise because no one had ever asked that question. And, you know, we, we made some phone calls and we got a supplier to come out with a, um, a number of recumbent trikes. And, you know, I was able to get on one of those and because the physios there were did an amazing job and I got my quads back, I was able to move this trike around um, a basketball court. It was, it was such a good feeling. And, um, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, I know quite a few cyclists who, you know, I'm sure they'd be able to help out. So I made a few phone calls and one of those phone calls was to James Lofting at HWL. And, um, you know, I just said, look, James, you know, how about you, you're a rich lawyer. How about you reach into your pocket and um, give me some cash to get this done? And he said, well. Oh, I like uh, that, Pete, sh- uh, the shakedown. Yeah, exactly right. You know, if you don't ask, you don't get. But he, um, to his credit, he said, no, I think that's, that's ridiculous. I'm a lawyer. I can't give you money. But I can help you run, a, run an event. And so he was really my uh, motivation to get, you know, a cycling event up and going. Which, which was really good of him. And I think he, he offered his support the whole way and just helping out in organising and, and, you know, hints and tips. Um, and so we had a really good turnout in the end. We've raised over $6,000, which will purchase a trike and then um, some customizations to it. And then that will go to the spinal rehab um, team. And anyone who goes through that ward, you know, probably from next year onwards will be able to get on a bike and, and go for a spin if they can. Yes, I think we should make a small contribution. I think that would be a great idea. The, uh, there's a GoFundMe page. There's a couple, of, a couple of links up on LinkedIn. Just find one of those and you can click on the GoFundMe page and make a donation. And we might, um, we might provide a link to that page as well in our, um, in our listener notes. That would be great. Now, now Pete, just a, a pet project that Jess has been very keen on and she's discussed it with me, and that is a tram day and a tram week for our hometown of Melbourne. Mm. Um, for listeners outside our state in Australia, Melbourne has the biggest tram network of any place in the world. What do you think of the idea of a tram week or a tram day celebration here? Oh, look, trams are iconic in Melbourne. You know, you the old rattlers. I think we've got to get them back out there. Um, perhaps if we can that, have that's a restaurant. The w, that's the W class you're talking about. Yeah, the old green ones. That's right. I think if we can get the, uh, the restaurant car doing laps, that'd be great. Jump on, jump off. Uh, Maybe th- bring back conductors. I, I think he's taking, not taking the... Uh, anyway, he's <laughs> making fun of us, Jess. <laughs> I don't think I've been on the restaurant tram since I was about 15. Uh, I, I remember getting on but not getting off. But... Um, <laughs> It's, what would you? I, what are you anticipating for Tram Day or Tram Week? Well, what activities well, uh, will we do? Well, well, I, I've got a, I've got to declare us. You know, my great grandfather was a cable man on the trams here in Melbourne. So, but I, th- I think we should celebrate public transport, Pete. And trams are a backbone, and they're very. I, I think they can be made 
I mean, people need to know more about their local places and history. I mean, there's such a big tram network and just what they do. I think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think they're underrated. I think, you know, trams run at such a high frequency and can carry so many people. You don't even think about them. You just jump on and jump off. I know when I was working in Collingwood, you jump on the 86 and you could go anywhere. It was great. Yeah, uh, but Pete, I was on the 86 yesterday and I was, I was just looking at how ugly the tram is, that in terms of when you look out the window, you've got advertising all on the window so passengers can't look out through clear glass. I mean, if you had have said to a tramways operator 30 years ago, we're going to block out the windows with all this advertising to the disadvantage of passengers, that would have been unacceptable. Am I onto something? Mm. It's an interesting point that I personally had never thought of. I mean, it takes away from all this good work that our urban designers are doing and our architects. You just can't see it as you go past. And, and sorry, Jester, but, but, you know, you look at the interiors of trams. I mean, you look at the old W class and there's beautiful timber panelling. There was beautiful pictures. The advertising placement was very subdued now it's like you could just hose down the blooming carriage and that's what the main purpose is and passengers are treated like cattle is, mm. is the issue though that all of the passengers are just looking down at their phones or their books or their newspapers or whatever it might be that people don't appreciate that view out the window anymore i personally love it no. i mean i i love getting on a on a tram for that particular reason is you know and as you say Pete, exploring the neighborhood that way i think it's it's a real shame that the advertising has kind of taken over uh, 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 and just and also just the, the 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 it's almost like a laundry um the inside of public transport it's there's just no touches of you know beauty or i Pete, what help me out here what do you think uh, I agree with you to an extent about like the new tram rolling stock is a bit ordinary. Like it's, there's nothing sexy about it. Let's be honest. But I feel there's a little bit of character in the older stock, which, you know, we, we, we kind of miss a little bit. Um, but does that, you know, detract from the functionality? Probably not. But, I think but you're it's right. not just, it's not just the functionality. We're not just atoms. We're not just, you know, we should be, Passengers should be treated, you know, like with respect, not just moving cattle. Hmm? Mm. And do you think that's, you know, a potentially part of or a subsequent act um, from conductors being taken off trams? You no longer have that personal touch? Well, I, I, I don't think it's got much to do with conductors, but, um, and you can... Uh, but conductors are special when I mean, they used to be special, but we just can't afford that. I can understand that, but there, there's no, when we talk about urban design in lots of public places, but in terms of public transport, it's just the lowest common denominator, but we're moving on to podcast extra, Pete. And that, this is something that you've read, watched, seen, listened to that you think our listeners might be interested in. Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in rehab watching TV. I 
I think I binged Game of Thrones in about four weeks, which was pretty hard work. Um, Good work. That's that's seriously impressive. <laughs> I don't like dragons, Pete. <laughs> oh, dragons are dangerous, Pete. Got to steer clear of those. Um, I, I think look, I think like everyone else, I've I watched Squid Game recently, which in itself was a great great series to watch, but the underlying discussion that it was trying to have about ballooning debt and um, affordability of housing and class gap in, in Korea was quite an interesting subtext, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I've sort of gone off and done a little bit of, um, of my own research around that. Which... But, but, you know, Pete, the Koreans do great drama. They and do. those those issues you mentioned are all amongst every place where this podcast goes to Mm. and and planning and traffic engineering perhaps needs to get back to basics to somehow remedy some of those problems oh i think there are some structural issues in our financial system in how we lend money for property that makes it unaffordable Um, i don't think that that's something that we can achieve in a, in a built form way. I mean, you know, people will, will talk about supply and demand and if you increase the supply, well, then that will, of course, reduce the, the uh, price people are willing to pay because there's more choice. But, you know, you've got to increase the right supply in the right location. Uh, it's a very complicated discussion, which I think is probably best served for another podcast. Uh, I think it's an easy discussion to have, Pete. I mean, you know, as you said, supply and demand is a simple equation. But um, now you haven't told us, Apart from Squid Game, anything else? Yeah, one of the other things. So one of my favourite books is, um, is, of all things, Gone with the Wind. It's a fairly epic story. Um, I'd strongly recommend it to anyone who's got several weeks of time to read. But I read that, um, reread that at the start of this year in the, and in the context of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, it, had, it took a whole different turn for me. And look, this has absolutely nothing to do with urban design or planning, but you know the under the overt racism through that book is just so ridiculous. And then it's juxtapositioned by this this woman Scarlet who rants and rages about the injustices of of women not having rights within a society, and at the same time, you know, treating treating um, you know black. black people in such a poor way and I found that to be such a jarring experience and not something that I'd picked up on when I'd read the book previously and I, you know it was the context that it was read in too I read that book probably 10-15 years ago for the first time and you know it was just read as a good story um, but when you read it in the context of social injustice it just it just rings a whole nother bell and you know it realizes this social injustice is systemic and and we need to do something about it and you know looking back in time to where we were and realizing how bad it was and how far we've yet to go I I think it's just it makes me a little bit worried sometimes oh Pete be optimistic I mean you know they've done surveys of public attitudes to interracial marriage and 50 years ago there was an incredible intolerance of interracial marriage now no one gives it, no one bats an eyelid to it. We've made incredible progress. Please don't despair. 
oh, we've come a long way, but I think we've oh, got a long uh, way to come. Well, to you know, it, it's hard to judge the art of a, of a different time in yes. current perspective. And you, can you imagine what people in 50 years' time are going to say about us? Oh, absolutely. Can you? I, I even look back now and when we had that um, the referendum on, on gay marriage, you know, that was the most ridiculous thing we've ever, ever done. Why would we vote on that? 50 years from now, people will be saying, why did they waste all that time and effort? Mm. Mm. Jess, what's your part? <laughs> Sorry, listeners, we're very political tonight. But yeah, what... we've, we've gone off the rails. <laughs> Sorry, it's my fault. And Jess, what's your podcast extra? My podcast extra is my solar panels, which I'm sure you'll love to talk about, Pete. Um, we got solar panels installed, uh, would have been, I think, the start of this year, actually. It would have been February. And, um, you know, we probably got them installed at the wrong time of the year because then we didn't really have a lot of warm weather and a lot of sunshine, particularly over this last winter, which has been incredibly wet here in Victoria. And um, we've had our most successful uh, two days in the last two days, which has been great. So, um, you know, using the little app that they give you and recording some of the data and seeing um, how many trees we've planted and uh, how many um, long haul flights that it equates to and all the rest. So it's been a really interesting um, little insight into our little, um, our little contribution that we can make. What about you, Pete? Jess, you're wrecking the grid. This is terrible. Your solar <laughs> experiment. It's, it's going to wreck the grid. Um, Definitely not. Anyway, what's your podcast <laughs> extra page? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I've started watching Succession, which is lots of fun. And Jess, I've started making chutney, which, well, I've made chutney uh, different varieties, and that's a lot of fun. So um, lots, of, lots of things. But, Pete, you've been a fantastic guest. Um, sorry we've been so rough on you. <laughs> we, right. we, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> so there's there, there's a real team, Jess, and I hope team Pete. Uh, someone, some listeners out there like team Pete. There's, but... there's not many people in uh, on team Pete, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> not recently, anyway. <laughs> well, it's it's Jess is good to be in a minority sometimes. It's fact, it's, I'm, I'm used to that. So, look, Pete, you've been a you've been a great sport. You've put up with our nonsense. Oh, it's I been hope fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, you, all credit to you, and God bless you. You've, you've a real inspiration to me, and I hope our listeners have taken a lot out of this. I, I have Jess, and uh, Jess, you're always terrific to do an interview with, but I think you should take the red pill sometimes. It's from the Matrix, of course, listeners. Thanks again, I, Pete. I haven't seen it. Sorry. <laughs> thanks again the, the joke Pete. is lost on me uh a, a bit like blade runner thanks um thanks so much Pete. thanks jess no worries see you later guys thanks Pete.